0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. So I recently made some reaction videos for YouTube, and at the end of recording them, I thought, actually, this would make a good audio podcast episode because I go into so many clinical issues. So that's what I'm going to do today. I broke up the reaction videos into two different parts. And so this is part one, and later on, we'll publish part two. The interview that I'm reacting to is an interview between Dr. Drew and Trisha Paytas on Dr. Drew's show. So you'll hear them talking and then I'll be reacting to it. Let's get to it.
1: Let's talk about these these, these outbursts. Yeah. So so mm-hmm. when I deal with people that have these kinds of outbursts, I personally look at them as like seizures almost. Like it's something your brain does and you have no control over it. Yet at the same time, you want to be accountable. How do you how do you balance those two sort of conv-
0: true two, two realities? Which OK, so that's interesting. Dr. Drew is saying that according to his perspective, I don't agree with it, but, you know, other clinicians can have their own perspectives that when some people have emotional reactivity, that it is more akin to a seizure and that you don't have any control over it. On the other hand, he's saying that we need to be accountable, accountable to our for our behavior And so, Doctor Drew is presenting that to Trisha. Now, my very limited understanding of Trisha's behavior and the way Trisha talks about their issues is that partially it is out of Trisha's control, but very much some of it is under Trisha's control. So, let's see what Trisha says here. She is. You don't have control
1: once they're triggered. You don't. That's a reality. Mm -hmm. And Maybe the medication will help you now and that that kind of thing. I think of it like a seizure, yet when patients have this stuff, I do have to kind of go, hey, hey, come on. How'd you get to that point? What are you going to do about it? That kind of thing.
0: Right. Absolutely. So even if we do have conditions that will cause us to have behavior that is mostly out of our control Or puts us into a mindset where we want to do things that we will regret almost immediately, then it is incumbent on us to do what we can to manage those triggers and become aware of our ramping up of emotions. Now, I don't know how that applies to Trisha. Trisha, I'm guessing, will will respond to this. And there are two things that I think Tricia has talked about in the past that might be at play here. One is personality disorder issues, which have to do with uh, trauma and your working models of self and other and your awareness of your emotions and also with PTSD. Let's see what Trisha says here.
2: We go to, I go to couples therapy with my fiance. He, he's he doesn't have any m- mental illness or anything like that, but he goes with me. And that was the big thing. It's like, how do we stop from being triggered in these rages? Because I, I and I recognize right. them. I recognize the triggers and I recognize when Ethan unintentionally or not, like I recognize the trigger and I was like, we have to stop. We have to stop. And then it was like 30 more minutes. Of-
0: right. So that was my interpretation uh, of what Trisha was doing in that other video of frenemies where they were talking about their uh, disagreements about the business they were talking about their disagreements about what segments to do in the show, and at a certain point, Trisha said, "I got to leave." Uh, they were just saying, "I, I got to go. I'm overwhelmed. Essentially, uh, I'm going to leave." And my interpretation was that Trisha, at the time, understood that they were being triggered, and they knew that if they continued to have a conversation, it would get worse. It's interesting that, and and good to hear that for Trisha. They are referencing therapy, both individual therapy, psychiatry, and couples therapy as a way of learning about their triggers so that they can manage their emotions better and they can manage their relationships better. Now, on the scale of things, we might look at that. and I'm guessing some of y'all did and say that Trisha failed in that moment or was unreasonable in that moment. But relative to the past, it's it's definitely an, an improvement according to Trisha. And, and, and I, given what Trisha is saying, I, I would agree with that.
2: Uh, knowing that like it actually gets to a bad place if we don't stop when I ask. And vice versa. If Moses asks to stop, we stop. You know. So I think it was more about one boundaries and also just disengaging completely. Like if I do want to fight with Moses, like he literally has to shut a door on me, which is maybe people think it's toxic, but that's just what it is. And an hour later, I'm fine, and I do have remorse. I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, why did I do that?
0: Interesting. So Trisha is saying that they will get triggered in close relationships, which is really common for people with I. Th- I'm, I'm not sure how Trisha identifies personality-wise, maybe Trisha will get into it. But for them, they are saying that they get triggered with Moses in the relationship and will have a big emotional reaction and become very hostile. And Moses has to separate himself from Trisha. And then later on, Trisha is like, oh, my God, what did I do? Now, I don't know, but often what is at play here is uh, personality disorders. We develop personality disorders often in response to early relationship traumas, and it is a form of traumatic response. You could consider it a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that is complex and that it's related to re- attachments. Maybe Trisha, we'll get into that.
2: I mean, I did, I did. I mean, but now it's 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 so far gone. Like it, it literally it's so far gone. So it it's just not a thing that can happen. But it's sad. It's sad because it was just so it was so good, but also like today was the first day where I really felt good just like being out of it because it really even talking like drama is just like not good for me. Like I just need to not be in that. All
0: right, interesting. On one hand, I agree with Trisha. Uh, the limited episodes that I had seen of Frenemies, I thought they had a good thing going good chemistry good, two interesting dynamic people bouncing off of each other uh two audiences coming together to some extent but it sounds like for trisha they're saying that it was hard on them emotionally and psychologically and they know now maybe it's best that i just don't get involved in that maybe it's me maybe it's ethan maybe it's both of us maybe it's something else maybe it's the audience who knows but i feel much more relaxed when i don't have to do that show and good for them for considering that instead of sacrificing that for you know ratings and views
2: Line and my therapist at the time who's my therapist style has I was like so I'm borderline and he would always say you have traits of it so I mean which is basically the first session he's like okay here go to like dbt classes which I never heard of and so that's obviously for borderlines but he kind of like did it without being like I think you could benefit from this it's also just like emotional like regulation
0: all right a lot that I can say here it sounds to me like Trisha's saying that they agree with the diagnosis of borderline They didn't say that specifically, but it sounds like they're agreeing with it. The therapist, according to Tricia, diagnosed them with borderline and recommended dialectical behavior therapy. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So borderline personality disorder is pretty complex. The Internet really does not understand it. Take it from me, as someone who specializes in personality disorders, it is very difficult to describe to someone verbally or even watching a video of someone talking about their own experience of a personality disorder to understand a personality disorder. You have to treat these people. Sometimes I find that if you had a spouse or a parent or a child that had a personality disorder, you might have a a little bit of knowledge, but usually you just have a, a sample size of one. And... No two people with borderline are the same. No two people with narcissistic personality disorder are the same. No two people with obsessive compulsive personality disorder are the same. So it's uh, when you experience it over and over and over again, and and, and this is true for really anything in the DSM, really any of the mental disorders, you have to experience a lot of cases before you uh, zero in on the commonalities and what we are talking about in the DSM and, and what the research uh, literature is talking about and what the field has been discussing for the past 150 years because these are descriptions. These are, uh, you know, cobbled together and morphed over time and socially constructed. They're not a thing. You know, when you have cancer and you take a blood test and there are certain markers of cancer, or you take the tumor out and you look at the tumor under a microscope, you, you can identify cancerous cells. When it comes to a mental disorder, we're just asking people for their experience or we're observing how they behave we're observing how we feel when we're around them and then we apply this label so it's 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 an approximation it's it's a conceptualization it's a way of talking about someone so that clinicians can understand each other it's it's not a thing especially i want to say this because people on the internet will say that person has narcissistic personality disorder as if it's some sort of indictment, uh, you know. At one, which is not uh, not act, not right headed, and two, as if you could diagnose from afar. Three, as if a layperson could diagnose from afar, and four, as if it's a some kind of uh, physical condition that you have. You know what I mean? It is a description. It's a it's a placeholder. It's like one example that I give in my class is I will ask people if. The Beastie Boys is rap. Do you consider Beastie Boys hip-hop or rap? And some people say, yeah, Beastie Boys is rap. Some people say Beastie Boys is rock. Well, who's right? Well, no one's right because it depends on how you define rap or hip-hop or what sort of songs you focus on or what elements of, of Beastie Boys you, you focus on. Well, it's the same when it comes to mental disorders. Do we call it borderline personality disorder? Do we call it a disorganized attachment? Do we call it just emotional dysregulation? Do we call it, um, you know, relational traumas? Do we call it complex PTSD? It it really just depends on who's talking about it, how you see it, what sort of things you focus on in a person. Okay, anyway. So for Trisha, they're saying that they have borderline personality disorder traits. So I actually don't like this model of thinking It's the, it's the way that's typically taught, where they will say that if you have a certain intensive, intensity of symptoms, you qualify for the full-blown personality disorder, a borderline personality disorder, or a paranoid personality disorder. But if you are subclinical, below the line, but you have some of the traits, then we say you have some of the traits. So you have the full-blown diagnosis or lower, lower down in intensity, you have traits. And then uh, there's a third category where you don't qualify even for the traits. So it, to me, that's three options. That, that's not very sufficient for me, especially when I'm thinking and especially when I'm communicating to other clinicians and maybe even to clients I use an arbitrary scale from zero to a hundred but you know percentage wise so for me the full blown disorder is like eighty percent and above maybe maybe seventy percent and above and those with traits would be between twenty and seventy percent and so I like to I like that finer more precise uh, measure because it just helps for a lot of reasons. It also helps for treatment because if someone is at 60% sort of in my mind and we can get them down to 30% over the span of a few years, then we've succeeded. Whereas if you're just using the zero traits and full-blown, you're still in the traits category, how can you gauge the difference between those? So uh, now what Tricia is saying is they have been diagnosed with traits, not the full-blown disorder. So what does that mean? Well, what that typically means is your symptoms are lower, th- that you have some insight into your behavior, meaning that you have, because uh, the, the full-blown personality disorders, often the individuals have zero insight. They think, one way to think about personality disorders, and once I figured this out, it really helped me to understand personality disorders. Personality disorders are a disorder of perception. You perceive things in a way that is not accurate and or not helpful. You perceive things in an an inaccurate way that is extremely unhelpful. For the borderline individual, they are perceiving rejection, abandonment, and betrayal where it does not exist, or they are making mountains out of molehills because they were traumatized by abandonment, rejection, criticism, and betrayal when they were young in very profound, ongoing ways, either by direct abuse or by abandonment or both or some kind of mismatch with the parents. And if you have traits, if you're somewhere in the middle, then it wasn't as bad or you didn't interpret it as bad. And that's important to understand about personality disorders as well, is that A lot of the severity of the symptoms or the development of symptoms at all has to do with the perception of how the child is perceiving things. So, for example, let's say you have an extroverted parent and an introverted infant, and the infant is interpreting all this invasion and loud talking and sort of encouraging the infant to be more extroverted as rejection of the child. And this mismatch, even though the parent is being a pretty good parent, and if you watch from the outside, you'd be like, well, you know, parents being a little extroverted, but, you know, it's just not bad parenting. They're not abusing the kid. But that mismatch, the child can end up internalizing this idea that there's something wrong with them. And this is also true for ADHD. or You know, there's a lot of things that children will enter into the world that are, aren't really understood or contained or managed by the parents. And the parents aren't being bad or abusive, but the child emerges into the world feeling as though there's something wrong with them and feeling as though they're being rejected. And then with borderline, they will develop this perception that they're being betrayed, abandoned, criticized, rejected. And as they have those feelings, they might manage it by being extremely hostile, you know, saying to parents like, you never love me. And the parents like, what, what's happening? And then the parent pulls away. And then the, the parent really is rejecting the child. And now the child is really saying, yeah, now you're rejecting me. You're really," And you rinse and repeat this over and over again. This vicious cycle occurs. And by the time you're 10, your parents really just don't like you at all. Secretly, they might, you know, on the surface act like they like you, but they don't really like you. You might really hate your parents. And this uh, idea gets ingrained into your personality, throughout your personality, that the world is going to abandon you that you are abandonable, that there's something wrong with you, that other people can't be trusted, but you're desperately wanting attachment security because you've never had it. So you're both desperate for closeness, but you're terrified of closeness and you're angry the closer you get to someone and you're desperately wanting some closeness. This is the core of Borderline. And so by the time you're 35 you perceive the world in this very distorted way you per- when your partner Moses for example uh, says a mild criticism like oh you're home late or oh you look tired or wow the place is kind of your your office is kind of messy right now it's a mild criticism for sure but the the trauma is so large for these individuals that you're you're poking it with this tiny criticism, and and this massive pain happens for the person with borderline where they're just like, ugh, and it hurts like the what's one of the you know biggest pain you know imagine you have a broken leg and someone like taps your knee it it hurts so bad it's the same. With this trauma, and it's the same brain mechanism too. By the way, we have social hurts that are registered in the same brain center as a physical hurt. And you, someone says, "Oh, your office looks dirty today," and so, it, it the criticism is taken from a 0.5 to a ten. Your hurt goes to a ten, and you also interpret it as this is the beginning of the end, because he sees my office as being dirty. I am now gonna be rejected, he's gonna leave me. It's a subconscious paranoia. It doesn't make any logical sense, and of course it doesn't make any sense to the person saying your office looks a little dirty today. But to you, it, it feels like a massive criticism. It feels like they're criticizing your very being. It, it, it hurts a lot, and then you get real angry, naturally, because you're like, I can't believe this person just came in my office and just dropped this bomb into my lap, because that's how it feels. So then you get real angry at the person, but you're also desperate for closeness at the same time. So you're angry and you're like, how dare you treat me like crap? You're always treating me. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating for the, for the point. But at the same time, it's like, please don't leave me. Please don't criticize me. Please be with me because we all need attachments. And the people with borderline have almost never, very often, they've never had a close Secure, safe, dependable, loyal attachment since the day they were born. So people with borderline are very deserving, but also extremely scared of getting close. So they're desperate for closeness, as we all are. But when we're raised well enough, we get enough closeness with other people that we can actually uh, feel okay day to day for the most part. We're, We're always wanting more and throughout our life. But for people with borderline, they've never had it. And so... Uh, Trisha is talking about that. That uh, so with traits, you have some level of insight into that. So I remember I said that personality disorders are a problem of perception. So for the full-blown borderline disordered individual, they will perceive. Uh, you know, someone comes in and says, "Hey, your office looks a little messy today," and and then the day later, you can go to that person with borderline and say. So on a scale from 1 to 10, how bad was it that they said that? They'd say, oh, it was a 10. With people with traits, people lower on the spectrum, as Trisha is claiming, they, will, they might in the moment get very upset. But then the next day you ask them, how bad was it? And they'll be like, well, I took it like it was a 10. But when I think back on it, it was more like a 3, even though it really was more like a 0.5. <laughs> so you have some insight into my reactivity isn't necessarily rational and my emotions aren't necessarily rational whereas the people on the full blown disorder they don't have any insight into that they think nope it was a 10 because that was justified who who said i mean he does it all the time he criticizes he criticizes me all the time he breaks my heart every day and you're like he just commented on your office it wasn't that it, he wasn't commenting on your on your personhood and he loves and right after that he apologizes and he says he loves you very much And to the borderline individual, because of their traumas being poked at all the time, then they have almost no ability to reflect on that process and say, uh, I was being irrational. I shouldn't say they have no ability, it just is a lot harder for them to accept a question mark. And that's what I will do with a lot of people on that end of the spectrum with borderline is, I might spend three years just helping them to introduce a question mark into their perceptions. Because the Catch-22 with people with borderline, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but the, the Catch-22 for people with borderline is because they have traumas around abandonment and criticism and betrayal and rejection. In therapy, they, they bring their irrationality, which is causing them all sorts of problems because they're seeing the world in this very distorted way. I, as a therapist, have to help them to question their own perception, to question, not to discount, but to evaluate, to wonder, hmm, maybe your assumption isn't correct. And I'm trying to help them, right, because they're seeing rejection around every corner. They push people away, which is the catch-22 to borderline, is that you were both abandoned as a child and then as an adult, you actually push people away such that they will abandon you again. It's not always the person with the borderline's fault, of course, but sometimes it's two way street. But anyway, they're not doing themselves any favors by being extremely hostile towards other people for very small. If if you know, there are things you can say to someone with borderline. Sometimes it's just the mood that they're in. You could say something like, um, "Oh, you look great today," and they'll say, "Oh, so I didn't look great yesterday," and then they'll focus really hard on that because it because that's how they're that's where they're coming from because that's. It's such a dominant part of their of their psyche, this notion of betrayal and abandonment, that they'll look for anything in what you said as evidence that right now you're abandoning, abandoning them because it feels like you're abandoning them, even though you're not abandoning them. Anyway, so the, the problem with therapy is that I am now trying to help them to question their perceptions so that they can not interpret things in such a distorted way such that they don't react in such a strong way such that people don't run away from them such that they can get their attachment needs met but the very beginning of that process that I have to kind of criticize them right i'm not being mean to them but i'm saying your perceptions might not be accurate and that's a criticism it's it's a helpful criticism it's a correct criticism <laughs> it's constructive criticism but it is criticism i'm saying you are kind of wrong about the way that you see the world sometimes you're you're not helping yourself you're you're assuming things too quickly now i would never just say you're wrong and i would never say you're interpreting things wrong but i would say let's let's raise the question even just raising the question allows for the possibility that the person is wrong and so by me raising the question if i just say hey do you think that you're accurate by implication i'm saying you might not be accurate which by implication is a criticism and so because there's a tiny little criticism and someone with borderline has massive relational wounds around criticism, they make a mountain out of a molehill, molehill and then they, are ext- they feel extremely betrayed by me, even though I am raising a very common therapeutic question and I'm trying to help them. So I might have to spend years building that relationship, proving myself to that individual so that when we do have those incursions on their ego they can rely on this track record you know week in and week out of i know that my therapist likes me or i have a strong suspicion that i can that they like me that i can trust them that they're on my side that they're, that they're not going to abandon me and only then can they start to withstand those kinds of questions and then we start the evaluation process So the first part of therapy for these people on the higher end of borderline is me just proving to them that I can be relied upon and I can be trusted. The problem is, is a lot of therapists do not want to do that kind of work. One, because they don't know they're supposed to. Or two, it's just, it's very, very taxing. (laughs) It's very difficult because the... The borderline clients will attack you. And and they've learned because they were attacked often, you know. I'm giving I, I gave some very uncommon examples of the development of borderline. Often the development of borderline is a straight-on, full-on abuse to the child, ongoing. And so they have been ripped apart. And these individuals have internalized all of those skills, if you will, about how to get underneath someone's skin and to destroy them from within. People with borderline in my office will do that to me. They know how to get under. it. They, somehow they know what buttons to press in me and I can withstand it a lot, but it's hard. You know, it, it, I have to, Oh, you know, that hurts, but I, you know, and then I have my supervisor and my therapist or my consultees, you know, I talk to Bob, those of you know, Bob and anyway, so for people who have traits, Therapy can go a lot faster because they have a they have an easier time accepting maybe my perceptions aren't accurate. And for Trisha, they're exhibiting that. They're saying, Yeah, you know, in the moment I get real angry at Moses, and then later on I go, Oh, I was, you know, having a episode there. So that's a good sign that they're able to have some insight, that they're able to criticize the self and have a some kind of foundation to stand on so yeah the other thing we heard about was dialectical behavior therapy or dbt and you've heard me talk about this before particularly with bob the coast the podcast he actually teaches classes in dbt and dbt was developed here in washington in seattle in uh my alma mater university of washington by marshall inahan primarily to help people with suicidality to reduce risk And also to help with emotional regulation, which often is a component of borderline personality disorder, but not always. And DBT is just a very, very good class on how to know your emotions, regulate your emotions, make better assumptions about other people, uh, question your own assumptions about other people, because a lot of our emotions are based on distortions of other people. So maybe they'll get into it.
2: Which maybe, people, yeah, I just, I don't know. I really I really benefited from those. And I did stop for a minute, but ever since my, like getting sober, sober, I like, I, I just, I've been very active of going. Um,
0: All right, so they're talking about getting sober. And I don't know if this is the case, but a lot of people with borderline personality disorder or any person, particularly the ones you hear about narcissism, histrionic often will abuse a lot of substances because of that pain I was talking about earlier. The constant state of feeling rejected and hurt and alone and desperate causes a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety. And when you can't trust other people or build relationships that can be stable over time, sometimes substances, alcohol, marijuana, opiates will numb the pain. So it's a tempting road to go down. Of course, when you go down those roads, the substances cause more problems than they solve. And then you end up at the bottom of some uh, situation and you get sober, which it sounds like Trisha did. Yeah. So so that's two different. Do you have to actually see border people
1: with borderline disorder often use a lot of substances. Not because they're addicts, because they're borderline. Do you actually have two different phenomena where you have addiction and borderline?
0: All right, interesting. So Dr. Drew is bringing up a good point. It's a matter of conceptualization. It's it's not, remember how I was talking about earlier, how is Beastie Boys is a rap or is a rock or is it both? It's a matter of how we categorize it. It's a matter of how we look at it. So similar to that in our field, my field of mental health, we will diagnose people with different labels. And if you have borderline personality disorder and you, you meet the criteria for a substance use disorder, do you have both or is the substance use a part, a symptom of the borderline personality disorder? So someone comes into my office, they exhibit borderline personality disorder. And by the way, for me to diagnose any personality disorder, it takes me weeks if not months to properly diagnose. It takes me a long time. I would never diagnose someone with personality disorder in the first five minutes or even the first session, unless unless the client really knows themselves well enough to describe to me all the markers of the personality disorder. That's how complicated personality disorders are. Whereas someone could present with generalized anxiety or major depressive, I could diagnose that in 30 seconds. It, it's very, very quick. The way that depression manifests now, I might not know if the depression is part of something else. Anyway, the point is, is that someone gets in my office, I, I eventually diagnose them with borderline personality disorder, and I they, they meet criteria for, say, alcohol use disorder. And do I say, well, they're only drinking because they're borderline, so I'm only going to include the diagnosis of borderline? Or do I include both of them and say, well, really, although they qualify for the alcohol use disorder, it's really a... It's really caused by the borderline personality disorder. Or do I conceptualize it as they truly have two diagnoses that are kind of related but are independent of each other? Meaning that if they didn't have borderline, they also would have alcohol use disorder. It's impossible to know that in in an individual. But that's usually at least the way that I think. So for Drew, he is bringing that up and asking... Tricia, what they think about that. Do they think that the alcohol use disorder was independent and would have developed regardless of the borderline, which of course is impossible to know, or it was the alcohol use disorder stemming from the borderline personality disorder? Hey, deserving listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to BetterHelp. Slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get
2: 10% off your first month today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, uh, Both. But see, when it comes – yeah, when it comes to addiction, it's so weird because I have a really addictive personality. But when it comes to, like, drugs and alcohol, I never had to go to, like, rehab. So I don't know if I necessarily was addicted. I think I just misused them, like, pills, you know, I would just misuse them.
0: All right. I don't know exactly what Trisha was saying there. It sounded to me like what Trisha was saying was I never had a full-blown – a dependency where uh, the compulsion was every day. You know, often when we're talking about people who end up going to rehab, not always, they needed every day all the time. Think of like cigarette smoking. Typically, you don't like binge on cigarettes on the weekend. You, you're smoking throughout the day every day because you got to have that nicotine. You got to have that behavioral uh, routine, you know, every so often. And so I'm guessing that's what Tricia is saying that the pills were a. A thing that they used as a way of coping with emotions. It became a problem. It was a habit that wasn't good. It, it caused problems in their life. It was something that they needed to get through the day. But maybe once they got treated for borderline in their life, Became a little bit more manageable. They didn't need the pills anymore, and so thus didn't need to go to rehab. Uh, sounds like that's what they're saying,
1: right? But but I think you once identified as, or maybe more than once, as, as sexually addicted.
2: Yeah, I have a yeah, definitely sex addiction and impulsive spending, like com- uh, like a compulsive shopper. Like you know, I just I spend money like insane. Like there's definitely an issue with that too, and eating and all. So I have.
0: Very interesting. So they're saying that they have eating spending compulsion and sex compulsion. The word addiction I don't I try to steer away from because it's it means so many different things and technically speaking it's not a clinical term that we use in diagnosing. We use the word disorder, alcohol use disorder, these kinds of things. And I also will try to introduce the word compulsive because that's much more descriptive than addiction because you can say to someone like with sex addiction, oh, I masturbate five times a day, therefore, you know, if someone says that they masturbate five times a day, then a lot of people say, oh, they're a sex addict. And I'm not sure what they mean by sex addict, what were, but the word compulsive is much more descriptive. So I think they just said, Trisha just said that they were compulsive regarding eating, spending, and, and with sex and they're saying that they have a an addictive personality. Well, what does that mean? Often what that means is it might run in families and it seems as though there is a genetic component that for some of us we are prone to compulsive behaviors for various different reasons. One, you know, as a way of trying to cope with anxiety, two, we are susceptible to certain behavioral dopamine processes or chemical dopamine processes, alcohol, opiates, this sort of thing. Some people, when they drink alcohol for the first time, it is such it gives them so much pleasure that it sets them up for compulsive behavior later on and problem use later on. Whereas other people, they drink alcohol or they smoke pot for the first time. and they're like, yeah, it doesn't really make me, I feel kind of high, but they don't have that euphoria and that sense of relaxation that some people And I've talked about this before that, a lot of people who suffer from heroin addiction, their path to heroin addiction was they were prescribed a pain med, you know, Vicodin, Oxycontin, this sort of thing, from a, a procedure that they had, like a surgery, like wisdom teeth pulled or something, They or they hurt their foot. They're given a few of these pills, and they take the pill because they're prescribed it, and for the first time in their life, they feel good. They feel relaxed. And then they want more and more of that. They seek pills and they eventually get to heroin. And so for some people, their traumas are such or their biology is such that it really, you know, sucks them in in this way. So maybe that's what Trisha's talking about, that they have an addictive personality in that way. Based on their description of their behavior, I suspect that. Trisha suffered because of the traumas. I'm guessing that Trisha went through. They developed borderline personality disorder and are either a part of the personality disorder or because of the traumas, often feeling anxious. And when we engage in compulsive behavior, it, one, it gives us something to do, it gives us something to distract us, and it can fill our brain with relaxing chemicals. Like when we take drugs, for example, it can do that. Or when we buy things, it can give us a a jolt of pleasure, or a jolt of relaxation, or a jolt of feeling safe. You know, some people will become uh, have compulsive spending because they're trying to help themselves feel safer. It feel it, it might not be rational all the time. It's not rational, of course, but there is some rationality to it in that. When we grow up poor in particular, we might not have a lot of food in the house or we might not have a roof over our heads. And so spending money is equated with safety and security and acceptability maybe. Anyway, maybe Tricia will go to that. And, and, and it's serious. The, it's serious. On, I, it's I, not
2: I, just like I, a girl. No,
1: I know it's serious. <laughs> and and I still think it's just borderline. But because the behaviors are serious enough, you have to approach them like separate problems. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It' all goes with borderline but but if you 're going to make yourself broke, you got to get that shopping under control <laughs> you know you got or if you 're going to hurt yourself with-
0: yeah so i don 't know, Tricia, but given the little bit that we 've heard from them, I would probably agree with Dr. Drew that instead of saying you really got to go to rehab, what would be the primary thing is we really got to you know focus on the borderline personality disorder. And once we can get that under control to some extent, these other compulsive behaviors might actually go away. Because if you're more secure in your relationships, you're less anxious, you feel more safety, there's less up and down in your mood because of relationship volatility, and thus you won't need to use the compulsive behaviors to help you cope from day to day. Now, uh, the way that he is wording it, Dr. Drew is wording it, is typical to the way people word it, which I don't know what he means by that, but I worry sometimes that people are saying, you have borderline personality disorder, and that defines who you are as a person, which philosophically doesn't make a lot of sense to me and also can be oppressive in some ways. Not all the time, but I would have worded it as... Because the borderline personality disorder isn't the bottom of the foundation. The bottom of the foundation are, are traumas, our are relational traumas. Now, I don't know what Trisha went through, but I've never met someone with borderline or any personality disorder that didn't have significant traumas. Now, sometimes it takes a while to figure out what they were. Uh, sometimes the individual has blocked it out. Sometimes it's more subtle than flat out physical sexual abuse, that kind of thing. But that's what I would say is that the traumas that you went through and the difficulties you went through relationally both caused what we call borderline personality disorder and result in the need for compulsive behaviors to soothe the self.
2: It's um, it's definitely an issue where it's just like I just can't every single day. I just have to spend.
0: Why
1: don't you have like a money manager, somebody that controls it, you know, so you can spend this, but you have th- something else
0: over here. Do, do Uh, So to say to someone who has a full blown compulsive problem with spending, why don't you just have a money manager is like asking someone with an eating disorder, why don't you just have a chef or why don't you just have your spouse monitor your food? It's such a nonsensical question or someone who's addicted to heroin. Well, why don't you just not use heroin? (laughs) Denies the and of all people, Doctor Drew understands that that a compulsive spending problem. If you could just hire a money manager, then you know, like there are people who have spending problems who will take credit cards out in their children's names and rack up a bunch of debt in their, even though morally speaking, it is it's you know horrific to them that they are essentially stealing their children's identity, but the compulsion is so strong. And so having a money manager wouldn't help anything if you have a true compulsion for spending.
2: Yeah, of course. I All mean, right. I just know everyone's like, no matter what I say, they're like pathological. Like everyone just thinks I lie about everything. So I mean, I don't know what to say other than like I speak my truth the best I can. And yeah. <laughs>
1: Where Where is that coming from, that they insist you're always lying? I, 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 again, border, with borderline, sometimes reality gets a little murky, and you probably do kind of lie sometimes. But why do they insist everything's a lie?
0: All right. So he is talking about how with borderline, the condition, you can have rea- reality can get a little murky sometimes. That doesn't mean lying, of course. And I, Dr. Drew isn't saying that. Well, so why would Dr. Drew say that? Well, I don't know. But what I would say is that the condition, I think I've already talked about this, because of the wounds that you have that are the foundational cause of borderline personality disorder, when someone says something to you, like the example I gave earlier about your your you know, partner comes into your room and says, wow, your office looks, you know, is kind of messy right now. And it's a criticism, but it's not a terrible criticism. And if you were raised better and didn't have all their relational traumas you had you have you would say ah, that hurts like on a scale from one to ten that hurts like a 1.5 or something it hurts but you know, it's not terrible it's just my office and to be honest it is kind of messy right now you know but it kind of hurts the way that they're saying it. it seems like they're criticizing me but I know that they love me and I know I'm a good person okay if you go through relational traumas you don't have any of that stuff to stand on you hear that you hear that criticism it's a, yet another criticism on a massive mountain of criticism that you haven't processed yet from your life. And it, it just hurts deeply and hurts like a 10. And you're angry like a 10, because how, how dare you just walk into my office and make me feel like crap. So what happens is the next day, if you have full blown borderline personality disorder, and someone asks you, oh, it looks like you're in a bad mood, what happened? You might say something like, well, my husband walked into my office yesterday and just went on a tirade about how terrible my office was. And he, you know, said things like he didn't love me anymore. So and that's no joke. People with full blown borderline personality disorder, even people on the spectrum, they remember, and we're, we all do this, we all remember through our emotional system. We don't, we're not like computers. A lot of us think that, and people will say that, like you record events like the way a video camera records events. No, 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 no. Proven time and time again, we study you know, humans and memory in the lab, and memories are malleable, they are very unreliable, And all of us do this. But when you have heightened emotions, as a lot of borderline people do often, the memory not only is being encoded through that filter, but then it's being remembered also through that filter. So if you had a video camera, the husband walks in the room and says, oh, your office looks a little messy today. And it's it's very nonchalant. Like there's not a lot of mirth in the statement. But by the t- And that's filtered through the perceptual system of the distorted perceptions of the person with the borderline. Then it's remembered once again through that filter. And by the time it comes out, the memory is, he walked in, he yelled at me about my office, and he said that he didn't love me anymore. And then if the husband is there, he might, I didn't say I didn't love you. I would never say that. And then she says, yes, you did. You said you didn't love me. You walked into my office. You said my office was terrible. And you said you didn't love me anymore. Okay, so why would someone remember something that didn't happen? Are they lying? No, (laughs) they remember it. That's how they remember it. It It's It's set in stone in their brain because that's how it felt to them. Because their perception is so distorted, based on uh, traumas that haven't been processed or healed, their memories and their experiences are almost filtered through their past. If you, will. I've never really thought about that before, but it, it's kind of that way. In the past, you were being you were being told that no one loved you. You were being treated as if no one loved you, and then you see everything through that lens. Things that are innocuous, you. You see it through that lens of I'm not lovable. They're saying they don't love me. And then you actually will invent the words in your head as if those things did happen. And so I think that's what Dr. Drew is talking about. Now, I'm not saying that everyone with borderline personality disorder does this a lot, but I've definitely you know, experienced this in the office such that a client will tell me that I said things earlier in the session or last week or last year that I never, ever said, even though... And they completely believe that I said it and I will reassure them. I, I, I guarantee you I never because it's often this persecutory uh, statement like a client will, you know, someone with borderline will claim that I told them that I thought he was a horrible person, like, a depl- like literally I said, you are a horrible, deplorable person. And he will say, yeah, you definitely said that last session. I heard you say, it. I remember you saying it and you need to apologize for it. And I would say, I never said that. One, two, I've never even thought it about you. Three, I've never thought it about any client. <laughs> I've never thought any of my clients were horrible, deplorable people. That's just not a thing. That's just not a thing that I think. I don't think that way. I don't. I just, I, I've, you know, I'm not like that. So I wouldn't think it about anyone. I wouldn't think about you. And I definitely wouldn't say it if I thought it, which I never have thought. It. Anyway, And he would say, no, 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 you said it. You said it. And it's that, you know, that perception, that distortion. It's because that's how it felt to him. It felt like I was saying he was deplorable. It felt like I was saying he was horrible. It felt like I wanted to reject him. And so the brain concocts this memory to fit how it feels.
2: Yeah, I mean, exaggeration or I'm very dramatic and I, and I can exaggerate, but I, especially when I'm talking about other people in situations, I really try not to exaggerate when I, especially cause like the stuff I've said, has always come out to light to be true.
0: So they're saying that they are dramatic. And this is something that is used as an adjective for people with borderline or histrionic, which I kind of consider to be very similar, if not one in the same disorders, same disorder and just different subtypes. So Tricia is saying that they are dramatic. I don't know if this is true, but for a lot of people with borderline and or with histrionic personality disorder, they are uh, described as dramatic because they feel as though they have to be very big with their emotions very big with their uh, reactivity to be noticed Let me give you kind of a, a course of development that would cause that so you're young and when you're being uh, people are uh, caregiving for you your parents or others that are caregiving they are inconsistent in their attachment, attunement to you. So sometimes they're uh, ignoring you. Sometimes they're kind of there for you. Other, but a lot of times they're maybe sometimes they're abusing you. And you learn subconsciously, sometimes consciously, but a lot of times it's subconscious and it's a neurological development thing. That when your emotions happen and you're hurt or you're sad or you need something and you have a normal amount of emotion, which causes a normal amount of signaling of that emotion, no one cares. So you're sad that you're being left alone, so you kind of sigh and you cry a little bit, and you're like, I'm all alone, and no one cares because no one's paying attention to you, or they are, but they don't care about your feelings or whatever. And over time, through trial and error, neurologically, your body learns that if you times every emotion times 10, then some of the times you'll get your attachment needs met. So you're alone, and instead of having a little bit of sighing, a little bit, of, you know, one tear, you have to scream. Even though, naturally, you would just, on a scale from 1 to 10, you would have, like, a reaction of, like, a 3. But no one ever pays attention to you to you when you're a 3, or you might even get abused when you're a 3, depending. So you have to do a 10 and this is a neurological development thing, in order for you to get your get your needs met. So you have the input of I'm alone. It causes an emotion of sadness. The sadness motivates a behavior, crying and screaming. And over time, the individual is rewarded only when they have explosive reactivity and very noticeable facial expressions. And uh, and so by the time you're 35, that's been locked into your neurology such that when you're even just kind of sad, you're extremely dramatic about it. And you post it all over the Internet and you talk about it big. And when you're in a room and there's three people, your conversation dominates because neurologically, you've learned the only way to be safe, the only way to get your needs met is by uh, not only being dramatic, but by amping up your emotions so that you will, it'll cause you to be dramatic so that you can get your needs met as an adult though, that can push people away and perpetuate the abandonment.
2: I'm not a mental health expert, just talking about everything from like childhood to the beginning. Right. But the problem is I blocked out a lot of it. So through my own therapy, going back to that, I'm like kind of remembering bits and pieces. Sorry, someone's calling me. Let me decline that. I remember bits and pieces. Um, but there are parts of my life that feels like it wasn't even me living it. So I'm kind of sometimes I question if that was real and I also
0: So this is very common. I don't know for Trisha particularly, but for a lot of people that were traumatized growing up emotionally, physically, they will have very spotty memories about the past for various different reasons. One is is that when we go through very difficult experiences in our families, we often have no one to talk with about it because our families are the people around us. And one of the ways that we consolidate memories, particularly the significant events in our life, is by recalling them and remembering them. So you get in a car accident, and afterwards, you recall it to the police officer. Then you go home, and you tell your spouse. And then you're out with your friends, and you tell your friends, and you're at work. and you. Every time you tell it, you're consolidating that memory, whereas... Uh, into long-term memory and it's becoming it's it's never a, a true recording of what happened but at least you'll remember i was in an accident you might get some of the details messed up but the fact that you were in an accident is is probably going to stay with you whereas when you go through something like someone sneaks into your room and does something to you in the middle of the night and you can't tell anyone by the way trigger alert all my content but, but particularly this episode because i'm not going to get into graphic details and i don't know if trisha is either but uh you know trigger a warning is someone comes into your room in the middle of the night and does something to you, and you don't tell anyone about it. And you, that which brings me to the other issue is you don't want to think about it. No one, no child wants to remember the horrible things that happened to them last night or the horrible things that happened to them a year ago. They just want to move on with their life. They just want, they're just trying to survive, right? And so you push things out and you try to forget. You might even kind of, you know, fantasize that, it didn't really happen to me because it's easier to think that way. And then you go into therapy at the age of 35 and you think, oh, you know, did that happen? Did this happen? It's it's hard to remember things. So I am i don't know if Trisha is uh, indicating that. Let's see what they say.
2: Clear with that, even despite being on drugs and stuff like that. So it's just more of like timelines I'm really foggy with because my early 20s, like teenager of 16 to teen, 20s, I was just... I was doing all that, not know, and I don't know what I was doing. I don't know where I was, you know?
1: And what can you talk about what happened in the childhood that was so murky?
0: No, 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 no. <laughs> Anyone who listens to my podcast or is a student of mine, I know some of you have been or are students of mine watching right now, that is a big no-no. So this is something that I learned the hard way early. And listen to all my episodes on trauma therapy and, and trauma in general, that – you don't ask someone, particularly with what Trisha has presented thus far, that they have a personality disorder that points to abuse when you were a child. Not all the time, but it, it definitely is. There's a strong indication of ongoing, difficult child abuse from maybe even people that are very close to you that. Uh, two, they've said that they don't remember things that happened back then. It's all very foggy. They remember things that happened recently. Three, they've talked about compulsive behaviors, sexual compulsive behaviors. This is also an indication of certain kinds of abuse. So the, there's a pretty good chance that Trisha has been through some very difficult times early in their life. And I get it, Dr. Drew, is wanting to help promote ideas to the public that can be promoted by Tricia talking about that, normalization, how to view it, this kind of thing. And also, Dr. Drew probably cares about Tricia and, and wants Tricia to feel like they can talk about what happened to them, which is something that I feel, and but dominated my motivation as a therapist early in my career. But what you can end up inadvertently doing is causing the client, the person, to traumatize themselves by, by recalling things that they're not ready to talk about. So it's very complicated, but it's also quite simple, and I'll try to quickly summarize it, is that when people have gone through traumas and it causes certain post-traumatic stress reactivity, uh, personality disorders, complex PTSD, other kinds of things... One of the key features of treatment and recovery is for the individual to habituate to the memory, meaning that they have to talk about their experience or think about it at the very least. In EMDR, for example, they don't talk about it. They just think about it. But you have to be able to imagine it in your mind, either as you're just thinking about it or by talking about it or writing about it or listening to yourself tell a story about it as within prolonged exposure, which is what I use. Anyway you have to become used to the memory. And the problem with trauma is that people often do not become used to the memory. For example, for me, I was, I was in a car accident when I was 16 and it was a difficult moment. I, I had a, you know a rush of adrenaline and fight or flight during that time, but it wasn't traumatizing to me such that I avoided the memory altogether. I might have been a little distressed the next day as I thought about it, but my body and my psychology could integrate that memory into my psyche. I I could face that memory the day later, a week later, a year later, and not have distress. The problem is with certain traumas for certain individuals, when they recall it the next day, when they recall it the next year, when they recall it 10 years later, they have a massive amount of distress, almost sometimes more than the stress that they had in the moment. And so they don't think about it. And the the way that the the model of thinking is that a part of our ability to move forward from a memory, from an experience, is to recall it, to integrate it, to get used to it, to make meaning out of it. And for people with PTSD and borderline personality disorder, which is arguably a, a form of PTSD, the self is constantly pushing back. And, of course, the traumas are piling up behind the door, and you're constantly pushing back on the door. So, uh, and it's for a good reason, because the individual cannot, uh, if they do open the door, a flood of, um, of experiences and tr- trauma and distress will happen, and their, their symptoms will become very difficult for a long time. So to ask a question like this to someone without taking the proper precautions can cause them, because they feel pressured, to remember uh, traumas that they've been through. And then they will get thrown into a PTSD reaction for the next month where they're dissociating and they're depressed and they need to turn to substances and they have low self-esteem, they can't sleep at night. They might have to engage a lot of compulsive, self-destructive behaviors to avoid the terrible distress that they're feeling. So you can't just ask someone, tell me about your traumas. And I had to learn this the hard way as a clinician early in my career. That's what I was told to do, and so I would do that. I wanted to be that person. That was one of the big reasons why I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted that, to be that person that people could tell me about what they went through, and that I wouldn't judge them, and I would hear them, and I would love them, and I would hold them, not physically, but you know, emotionally. And I would be safe, and they could tell me things. And I learned that for some people who didn't have PTSD, when I asked them, tell me about your troubles, Then they could tell me about it. But with other people, if I ask them, you know, you can tell me and they'll say, I've never told anyone this before. And I say, you can tell me, you know, I can be that first person you can tell. They would tell me and then they would blow out of therapy because after they leave my office, they have just tremendous PTSD reactivity for the next month. And they just figure therapy is terrible. It hurts me. I don't want to go back because he's going to ask me about my past again. I just didn't know what I was doing until I actually studied it and had supervision and consultation and went back to people with borderline and complex PTSD and PTSD and narcissism and histrionic and paranoid personality disorder I did this you know cycle many many times reading supervision consultation clients thinking you know experience. I finally figured out oh and it took me a long time to figure out the principles of the brain, the principles of trauma and the principles of recovery, the principles of exposure and prolonged exposure, why EMDR works, why uh, PCT works, why pr- prolonged exposure works. And I actually integrated my own treatment protocol that is very individualistic. You know, I, I individualize it for every client. For some clients, I can treat their PTSD in seven sessions, and I've done that. For some clients, it takes 15 years, literally. So it just depends on how much trauma, the intensity of it, how um, much we have to unpack, how much prep we have to do before the exposure. Anyway, so for Dr. Drew to just be like, what did you go through? Is a very irresponsible question to ask someone, particularly given what Tricia has exhibited up until all the classic signs. We heard Tricia say that They don't remember things, and that could be that they do remember things, but they don't want to remember things because they know what will happen to their body and mind if they do remember things. All right, everyone on the audio podcast feed, that does it for that episode. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.